Welcome to FRT episode 102. I'm Brad Carr in Washington. And today, instead of crossing the globe as we normally do, we're actually going to keep our focus closer to home here in Washington, primarily at least, with the news of President Biden's new executive order on promoting competition in the American economy. Signed on July 9, this is a very wide ranging and comprehensive executive order. And that's an interesting issue in itself in terms of how government policy is executed in the US, the effect it can have and the extent to which recommendations and policy signals can or cannot become something tangible. We're going to unpack some of that with a focus on the technology business models and financial services implications in particular that formed a prominent part of the executive order's focus. We're also going to put that in some context with the wider moves against tech firms that we're seeing around the world, a lot actually happening in a number of jurisdictions all around about the same time. Joining me are two of my IAF colleagues, Conan French is with me once again, and we're joined by Clay Lowry, our executive vice president research and policy. Clay, Conan, thank you both for joining us on FRT. Thanks for having me, Brad. Great to do another session. Let's start with some of the headline issues in the executive order for our industry and for digital finance in particular. Um, There's a lot in the executive order on technology, on data accumulation by big tech firms, on how those platforms interact and compete with small businesses, the dynamics with internet marketplaces, and I think some really interesting references to how this crosses over into financial services. Conan, can I get you to kick us off with the standout issues that you see highlighted in this space? Well, I think in in tech, they started off focusing on what uh, VCs call killer acquisitions. And those are firms that have been rolled up into the big tech platforms because they either had uh, some sort of key uh, development or innovation that might have been needed or might have been a a threat. And the fact that they were rolling up into these... um, you know, growth through acquisition models, uh, but really, you know, there's there's a, a tone of fending off competition. And I think they're sort of hearkening back uh, wistfully to an age and mentioning the fact that Apple, uh, Google, Amazon, all were startups within our lifetime in small garages and are now, you know, massive global behemoths. And so I think that there's a, uh, a, a wish and a hope to try and bring some of that entrepreneurial spirit back into the, the tech sector. But some of that might uh, just be looking past, you know, sort of the entry of, of a brand new industry into the world and what happens when that, that launches the natural progression. This focus on killer acquisitions and uh, dampening competition through, through acquisition is a key focus, and they've encouraged the FTC to establish rules as well on surveillance and accumulation of data. And that's the other uh, big key to big tech is that um, when you talk about data and automated algorithms and insight, scale matters and the ability to have you know, vast stores of data and the advanced analytics tools um, to make good use of them is the, the other key issue um, for competition that you know, a, a platform can just put things that you're interested in or, or focused on um, in front of you much easier than, uh, than a smaller firm or a startup could. And then I think the third piece that they've really focused on is the um, you know, reliance uh, on these platforms to reach customers if you're a smaller firm in any industry. And the fact that these marketplaces, again, are so consolidated um, and so focused. Um, but the tension of how do you deliver what consumers have come to want and expect and may increasingly expect in platforms uh, is, is going to be a, a challenge uh, moving forward because customers seem to just like the fact that they have uh, one or two or three places that they can go. So we'll see how this uh, plays out in the marketplace. Reminds me a bit of what uh, Doug Arna uh, of Hong Kong University talked about with us on episode 98 of the economies of scale and the network effects of big tech platforms and the intersection of those scale and network issues. 
that you're alluding to, and it, it does seem that we are uh, addressing and staring into to those same very issues. Could I connect this a little bit with, with open banking? And I noticed there was a, a really interesting comment right at the end of the executive order. I thought a really interesting statement encouraging the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, or CFPB, to issue rules allowing customers to download their banking data and to take that with them. That is, I think, in essence, what open banking has become in, in other parts of the world. But where we've seen open banking pursued in some other countries for this motive of promoting competition, it hasn't always worked out that way. Uh, and it hasn't necessarily fostered the growth of fintechs and challenger banks in the way intended. It's often ended up being a, a one-sided asymmetric data flow where I can go and tell my bank to share the data it has on me with a tech firm, but I can't do the, the inverse. Manju Puri at the FDIC uh, did some fascinating research that I, I highly recommend that, that calls out some of the advantages you can get from putting those together. So I, I do fear a little bit that, that this move, if it is limited to open banking, and if it's not a broader cross-sectoral open data approach, it could actually inhibit competition against the, the backdrop of that network effect and the economies of scale and of scope, and, and it could actually play into the hands of some of the big tech firms. And I wonder if this line at the bottom of the executive order about banking data and, and the CFPB could actually work against the part about data accumulation and monetization by tech firms that you were just touching on, Conan. Just wondering if that's something I could invite you to react to. I, I do note also that, that there is a, a reference that Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen will be preparing a report on how the activities of big tech companies and non-banks affect competition within the next nine months. I think that's going to be a really crucial piece for shaping how open banking or open data goes forward. But Conan, if I could invite your reaction on that. I do think that that report that you mentioned or, or um, Secretary Yellen's focus will be important because I found it sort of ironic that they followed the tech section where they worried about the growing use and scale and the role of the platforms with the open banking section uh, without mention or, or sort of really understanding that dynamic that's become a little clearer globally. And that is when you open up banking data, one of the few places that could really make great use of this are the huge um, tech platforms where they can integrate that with all of the other data that they have across your life uh, and you know, really come forward with a very complete picture, whether you're thinking about you know, alternative credit scoring or sort of next generation products uh, and, and offerings. So it is a little ironic that the sections follow each other without reference. And hopefully that's something that Secretary Yellen and her team will give a little more thought to. CFPB had started the, the rulemaking process last um, fall. This is something that's been on the books since Dodd-Frank and hadn't really moved forward in the U.S. Instead, it's been done sort of through practice by um, screen scraping and, and sort of other means. So I think that this is an attempt to push forward the process to make this uh, a more regulated and, and outlined uh, system in the U.S., which I think is, is probably good. Um, but again, the, the irony that the big tech platforms are probably best positioned um, to take advantage of this in lending and embedded payments and embedded finance is something that hopefully will be uh, looked at, thought about, and addressed in other forums since this one didn't seem to do it. Clay, if I could turn to you, and you know, Conan and I obviously have jumped straight in here into the, the tech business model issues that you know, we think are very much front of mind. But let's step back a bit, and, and it's obviously a very broad executive order. What most stands out for you? Well, thanks, Brad. Um, so let me talk about a couple things. First of all, this is a huge executive order. There's a lot of stuff in there. There's some big picture issues, which I think we can get to in a bit. But let me kind of let me stay on the focus of financial services issues. There's two parts to that I want to talk about. One is the one that you and Conan were just discussing, which is this nine-month study that the Secretary of Treasury is supposed to lead. Now, 
we should keep in mind that the Treasury Department is very much a part of the Financial Stability Board, which has actually done studies in this exact same area. So I think it'll be interesting because the Treasury Department will be trying to take what has been done on an international global level and trying to figure it out on a more domestic level in the context of an executive order about having greater competition and about having greater inclusiveness. That's sort of the objectives of the, the executive order. The second issue is an interesting one, which is really just almost strictly about kind of classical antitrust merger activity. So the attorney general, that's the Department of Justice, will lead a, a study in coordination with the key financial regulatory agencies that look at merger activity in the financial services sector. So the Federal Reserve, the FDIC, and the OCC. And so what they're going to look at is basically, you know, do the guidelines on merger activity need to be updated? They have not essentially been updated since 1995. So maybe an interesting factoid is that this was, you know, the Biden administration and the Trump administration probably seen antitrust issues very, very, very differently. But on this issue, it is interesting that the Trump administration had actually uh, started conducting a kind of review and comment study period back uh, last fall. And the question will be is, do they move away from sort of a quantitative studies on bank merger activity, which has qualitative factors, and move towards a slightly different model? And that, that's a, an open question. And so I think that that will be what they'll be looking at over the next six months. Important that you mention inclusion there as, as one of the key objectives there, Clay. And uh, I've noticed that there's also quite a lot in the executive order about internet services and the, the cost and availability of internet providers. I think there was a remark that President Biden made in the signing ceremony about how uh, there's 65 million Americans who only have a singular internet service provider available and, and that can inflate prices by as much as five times. And when you talk about that as being a big focus for, for Janet Yellen, it does take me back to the opening remarks she gave at Treasury's digital identity event in February, where she told the anecdote of the many families across the country who'd been spending the day in McDonald's parking lots because that was the one place that they could actually get accessible Wi-Fi for the purpose of their kids' homeschooling. So it's clearly something that is very much front of mind for her and, and I think a big part of where access to that kind of technology is a, is a crucial underpinner for many of the other digital services and digital financial services that, that we focus on more broadly. I want to pick out one other thing that leapt out at me, and, and Conan, if I can get your thoughts here also. I thought there were some echoes of the Massachusetts right to repair referendum from last November which was a big story, uh, I think, at the time on the question of who owns the telematics data in a motor vehicle, and something that I think could have big implications for insurers' ability to use such data uh, in their modelling, uh, enabling things like AI and insurance uh, in the future. And I note that that same phrasing appears in the executive order, although this time specifically in conjunction with farmers' tractors. Um, so I'm acknowledging that I, I may be drawing a bit of a long bow by picking up on that, that tractor-specific reference here. But Conan, I wonder if this is also emblematic of a direction of travel for this administration in terms of, of an environment that increasingly asserts the consumer as being the, the owner, the consumer as having the primacy in the, the ownership and the use of their data. Thoughts from you on that? Yeah, I think there's been a growing awareness that the device is the portal 
uh, into these ecosystems. And for instance, when you look at Apple and the secure element in those devices and, and how that's been used across their ecosystem uh, and how that model transmits through marketplaces, I think that this EO sort of reflects some of that growing awareness that data rights and uh, who controls the secure element and the you know, entry portal into these ecosystems is increasingly important. So I think it's a good and interesting reflection. And I do think it, it shows some, as you said, fairly distributed uh, little shoots, but a growing awareness that they want to try and shift the balance of power back towards the individual in data ownership. And that's something that is you know, somewhat consistent with a global trend. And so that's a place where we might hope to see a little harmonization. And I also think as, you know, as the US market moves and regulating its own tech environment, that will allow you know, other markets to engage with the U.S. a little more proactively in, in some of these data discussions. Um, that's, that's a hopeful possibly, <laughs> and we might dive into uh, some of the differences where friction um, on treatments of data and, and localization of data are more of a global trend that this EO is happening in the midst of. We've talked a bit here already about some of the, the key policy signals um, from this executive order. Let's talk a little bit about its effect. And, and Clay, you know, keen to have your, your views here. You know, what does this actually mean in practice and, and what happens next? Uh, the president has issued this executive order. One headline on the day read that, that President Joe Biden is taking on the tech giants with or without Congress behind him. But really keen to understand from you, you know, what does this all really mean and how does this actually work? So this is a tricky question, actually. So um, as you mentioned at the beginning, it's a very sweeping executive order. I believe there are 72 initiatives in it. There are over 12 agencies that are supposed to be uh, implementing or executing on it. And in fact, actually, you have to be careful because the uh, executive order directs the executive agencies to do things, whereas it encourages the more independent agencies to do things. We'll see how that plays out. Then on top of it, what they've done is they've created an oversight board that'll be led by the White House to kind of see whether or not this implementation execution is working in practice. Well, how does it actually work in practice? I'm gonna say there's a, probably a few things we have to keep in mind. Number one, the business community itself is gonna start pushing back on this bill. You've already started to see it a little bit in a broader sense. And so think about that as, I mean, it could be lobbying, but really it's just kind of, kind of providing evidence and thinking about um, and concerns that this could potentially raise whether, it, by the way, competitiveness concerns, which is, this, remember, this is supposed to be about competitiveness. Second is the rulemaking process itself. Rulemaking process, what does that mean? That means there has to be honest analysis that is done. They have to issue a rule. The rule is going to be put up forward for uh, actual comment and reflection. And then they have to take into account that comment and reflection in adapting that rule. That takes time. And the reason you do that is because of the third problem, which is the courts. If you don't do the processes correctly, the agencies leave themselves very vulnerable for uh, a challenge in court. And that challenges will come. Even if they do a great process, the challenges will come because people are going to sue over these type of issues because there are concerns about how this is going to be reflected in reality. And the fourth issue is politics. And there's a, there's a political issue about kind of the the difference between the executive branch and the legislative branch in the United States. But there's also the issue that one man's executive order can be overturned by the next man or woman, uh, depending on who the next president is. So we've seen that Obama administration executive orders got overturned by the Trump administration. 
Trump administration executive orders have been overturned by the Biden administration already, and it's still very early in the Biden administration. So if you rule by executive order, you are subject to the political whims of whoever the next president is. So um, there's a long way to go on this. Some of it will be multi-year, some of it will be multi-month. And that doesn't include the issues about studying this and studying that, which is what we were kind of talking about at the start of the program. Continue to dive into that uh, political dynamic a little bit and understanding how some of this uh, process uh, moves in the environment that is happening. And as you had noted, um, and, and many others have, the Obama administration at the end of 2016, at the end of their term, um, put out an executive order that Jason Furman, then chair of the White House uh, Council of Economic Advisors, was outlining many of these same issues. Um, but again, not much uh, moved. And then, of course, it was immediately overturned by the incoming Trump uh, administration. So as you think about the process and uh, everything that's been outlined, and you know, I, I sort of describe rule by EO as metronome politics. You sort of swing strongly in one direction and the other, and it keeps tick-tocking back and forth. And some of the things that are addressed in this EO uh, might potentially be addressed in another era through legislation. So to try all of that together, as you think about the environment, um, particularly with Congress and um, the different branches of government here in the U.S., what are your thoughts on how um, this will move forward? And particularly in an environment, you know, when we think about the big tech and banking elements, about the only thing that, that the Republican and Democratic parties here in the U.S. can agree on is that they uh, have problems with big tech at the moment, but their common shared enemy is sort of where that, that ends. You know, after that, you know, Republicans are really worried about um, it as a channel for public speech and private censorship by big tech and, and trying to block that, whereas the Democrats are very concerned about the role in the economy, monopoly power, um, pricey power, and, and other issues. So if all they can agree on is that they have problems with big tech, how do you think that will complicate or impact the environment for this executive order um, to be implemented in the process here in a very political city? Since this executive order was not specifically targeted, it was very broad. It, it covers a lot of issues that have absolutely nothing to do with big tech, nothing. And then, of course, so you're right, there's deep concerns on both parties, and as you mentioned, for sometimes very different reasons about big tech issues. And in fact, actually, just this week, we'll be seeing Republican-led efforts in Congress to look at antitrust issues revolving around some technology companies. So could there be a meeting of the minds, so to speak, between the Democrats and the Republicans on specific areas on big tech? related to antitrust? And the answer is potentially very well could be a yes. Does it get more complicated by the fact that the administration incoming has put out such a sweeping executive order that in some respects undermines a central philosophy of the antitrust experts uh, that are more conservative in this country? So the antitrust experts are more conservative in this country I think, believe in the concern about trying to figure out consumer welfare. In some respects, in fact, actually Joe Biden himself, the president, said this is supposed to kind of dislodge that theory. And so could that actually create its own set of political problems, even though if it was a much more targeted type of action, you could see maybe some agreement of the minds, even if you have very different objectives in mind. So we'll see, I mean, is the answer, I mean, which is not a great answer, but that's basically, it is the answer. Related to that is a different thing, which is the kind of the Washington watchword we always use, which is personnel is policy. 
And so we're still waiting on some of the key personnel that will be involved in this. We now have a new chair of the FTC, which is one of our key antitrust regulators. We don't have a, the key personnel on the Department of Justice on antitrust. We don't have some of the key personnel for the regulators at the OCC. We still don't have one. We're going to have kind of potential of major switchover at the Federal Reserve level. So we're going to have to see how that plays out. How did the personnel come forward from the Biden administration? And how does Congress treat that personnel? Because remember, one thing they can do is they can create a lot of concern. And we're already seeing it right now at the CFPB, which uh, you and Brad were talking about earlier in this program. One of the people that is now at the FTC has been nominated by President Biden to be at the head of the CFPB, and he potentially could be running into issues and problems. And does this kind of executive order complicate that? I'm not sure, but it just goes to show there's a lot, there's a lot of there from a political standpoint. So it is, I think, probably as always, a, a complex political labyrinth um, here in Washington where, on one hand, we do have areas of convergence between the parties on the, the policy, but we have a very complex situation in terms of the, the personnel and that part of the landscape. Let's, let's put this into a, a bit of a wider context with what's happening globally. And certainly we've seen a, a growing trend of, of tech lash coming to, to promulgate policy directions around the world. Conan, I wonder if we start with Europe, and then we might pivot and talk about China with Clay in a second. But uh, there's a lot happening in Europe. Um, it's motivated in part by some of the similar concerns to what we see here in the US about tech firm scale and, and network reach. But it's also coloured at times by more of a cross-border or geopolitical concern, the dominant players specifically being US tech firms that are operating in Europe. Conan, I was wondering if you could quickly update us on, on what you see uh, and how this uh, relates from Europe to what we're seeing here in the US. I think that you've struck on the, the uh, salient point there, and it's that Europe has many of the same concerns, but it's really viewed through the lens that the dominant tech platforms there are foreign entities um, from the U.S. market. And so on top of the issues that you see articulated in this executive order um, is layering on uh, some um, thoughts on data localization. And as we've talked about in many other forums, um, there are some uh, perceptions of data, the value of data, how the value of data is derived and, and how it can benefit society, that um, it's a bit problematic. And we've seen Europe really join uh, a trend that had started in the BRIC countries of um, you know, Brazil, India, Russia, China, of localizing data and trying to create um, sort of walled gardens for, for data and local national champions. And these efforts sort of ignore some of the, the base economics of data where it's most valuable when it's used. It's, a, it's not a depletable resource. It's infinitely uh, reusable. So we see this as unproductive. And again, it's um, becoming a much more challenging map in the EU where Dora and other um, you know, cloud provisions are seeking to not just address some of the challenges uh, from this EO, but also try and create space um, for a European national champion. And you know, in the, the data policy that they had released uh, in, in January, it outlines uh, efforts, um, including only having algorithms that are trained on European data operating in, in Europe. So they've got many other issues that they're layering uh, on top of it, uh, while also trying to address some of the, the concentration and monopoly concerns that the CEO uh, lays out. The positive of that is that by, you know, as I mentioned before, the U.S. taking on some of these issues of privacy, data, use of data, and portability of data, 
um, there are some points where they're starting to converge with some of the European efforts. Um, and so again, it's a great hope that this is a signal that opens up for a broader and more constructive conversation about how we can uh, have data flow across borders and across economic sectors with permission and security. Uh, and, and that's really, you know, I think a productive point of arrival for the world, but we may still be a long way away from that, uh, but maybe this is a, um, a starting point for common conversations. There were some constructive signals, I thought, out of the G7 and out of the uh, USEU summit uh, last month that is, is hopefully encouraging on, on some of those points you mentioned. Clay, we might pivot and talk about China. And, and I was thinking initially of obviously the experience of what we've seen with the aborted Ant Financial IPO. Um, we've seen the, the recent crackdown on the ride-hailing tech firm Didi forced to stop downloads of their app just immediately after, really, they listed on the, the New York Stock Exchange. Although I also want to pick up that, that Conan used the phrase walled gardens, and, uh, and there has been an interesting Bloomberg article this week citing that Alibaba and Tencent may actually be opening up their walled gardens, perhaps in response to, to some of the pressure from the administration in China. Perhaps uh, this article suggested simply opening it up to each other, but it's a, an interesting dynamic there in, in China as well, and I was wondering if you could share any thoughts on what we're seeing there. The word dynamic is a very appropriate word there. Um, I uh, So I, I think, I, here's the way I'm thinking about China, which is that I think there are four risks that you know, one needs to think about when looking at China and how to think about their data. First is a specific firm risk, right, which obviously is hard to do, uh, but just try to think about, like, are they in compliance with the data standards? Um, are they actually working with the regulators or are they working against the regulators on an individual company basis and we've seen a little of that second is a risk that is kind of much closer to what conan was just talking about on europe which is sort of for lack of a better word a data risk and that data risk i think is a um, the risk of the concerns of government about how data is used particularly on a cross-border basis and and sometimes, by the way, in the United States, we've seen this as well. It's sometimes when a Chinese company is trying to come into the United States to, to actually do an acquisition and whether or not that, that leads towards a national security risk on data. In this case, there seems to be a little bit of the data going outward outside of China risk. Kind of the platform companies have this. The third is sort of, I would guess, as a kind of a classical antitrust uh, risk and regulatory risk about basically some of these data companies becoming too big. What you've seen differently, I think, in China that you would see in a country like the United States, so we're talking about our antitrust issues, is they, when they administer something, they can sometimes administer it very quickly and sometimes fairly capriciously. I mean, we don't know exactly what happened. It kind of comes about. There's not that rule comment period. There doesn't seem to be a lot of legal recourse. And so that's a risk that you have to think about. The fourth one, and maybe this is not really a risk, I just kind of I lumped it in, which is I think that there's a concern in China. It's almost a competitive nationality concern, which is, um, and I could be wrong, of course, is do we list overseas or do we list domestically? And so um, and, and uh, when I worked at the U.S. Treasury Department, we sometimes thought about that as well. Like, do you want IPOs to be done in New York as opposed to in London or in Hong Kong or something like that? I wonder whether that's part of what's happening here as well. So I, the first three, I feel a little more strongly about than the fourth, but I think that the fourth one is something to think about. 
I think it's interesting and perhaps ironic that at a time that we have rising uh, frictions between the, the U.S. and China and, and you know, more overt nationalistic approaches, the systems might be actually converging a little bit. You know, China and the U.S. ironically are taking on many of the same issues um, and China can move with speed. And so you see things that are kind of mused about in this executive order. And as Clay outlined, might take years of wrangling in Washington to come to fruition. Whereas there has been very rapid movement in China, and the great irony is that some aspects of the you know, system might be um, uh, quite similar to what some folks in Washington are trying to achieve uh, in trying to figure out and update the regulatory framework for big tech. So look, we've, we've talked a lot here, obviously, about the issues that are, are front of mind for our industry. Of course, we've said at the outset, it's a very, very broad ranging executive order extending beyond finance and technology. It's going to have some wider uh, economic issues uh, and implications, which I think is probably just worth touching on as well, Clay, and, and just keen to get your thoughts on, on other things that you thought were particularly noteworthy. I'll, I'll mention one and, and that I noticed that in his remarks when signing the order, the president talked a lot about hearing aids and the example of the restrictive nature of not being able to get those over the counter at the pharmacy and, and how this uh, had caused them to cost thousands. There was a lot about big agriculture putting a squeeze on farmers. But other things that, that you noticed that were particularly noteworthy in this executive order. So what's most noteworthy to me is not the specifics and the specific industries. It's the overall approach, which is that regulation and intervention of the state in the United States will be beneficial for competitiveness and inclusiveness. Now, this pushes against a kind of a theory that has been out there, with some on the other side saying that instead what this is going to do is actually push you towards concentration as opposed to towards competition. And that's why, you know, the, the famous book that Robert Bork wrote on this is called The Paradox of Antitrust Law. And so I think that that is very interesting to me. The second part actually is that this administration, which is obviously still quite new, has demonstrated or is showing that regulatory zeal is here to stay. And so if there were some that thought that the Trump administration had moved in a fairly deregulatory manner, and I'm not completely convinced of that myself, this administration is saying that is over and we're going to move in a much more regulatory manner because that's what we think will help the U.S. economy be, as I said, more competitive and more inclusive going forward. And I think that those two points are very important to note. Well, thank you, Clay, and thank you, Conan. I'm going to have a quick attempt at trying to summarise some of the key themes that we've we've articulated here, yeah, noting, as we've repeatedly said, the, the very wide-ranging nature. It is a sweeping executive order. It has 72 initiatives. It reaches across 12 agencies. It starts with, as Conan put it, what venture capitalists would call the, the killer acquisitions, um, how the likes of, of Apple have grown, and uh, as he put it, a, a wish and a hope to bring back that same entrepreneurial spirit in a way that can be done without dampening competition. I think that probably links a little bit to the, the mindset uh, of the administration that, that Clay just touched on a moment ago with this overall signal of, of regulatory intervention being needed, apparently, to, to support competition. Um, we talked a bit about, obviously, the, the nature of big tech business model, the reliance on data, the ability to monetize data, and the uh, extent to which scale is obviously uh, central to that. And we focus very much on the, the very major role, I think, that will come from the, the Treasury in the upcoming report over the next nine months. And certainly, where I focus on the, the direction of the open banking versus open data construct, 
I think it'll be instrumental in shaping that direction, but it'll also have some other much bigger, broader ramifications for the, the future competition dynamic. I think the, the pivotal role of inclusion, and, and I'm really glad that Clay brought this point up early in our discussion, and I think it is really important, a really important one for us to keep um, cognizant of as one of the underlying uh, motives and drivers here. And I think it's it's important that we we see the executive order in the context that, uh, as Clay put it, the, the 12 agencies involved have quite varying scopes and varying degrees to which they can be directed or encouraged, as well as the fact that the executive order will face some significant issues with courts and with politics, and that there's a lot to go, uh, a lot of water to come under the bridge before this can come to fruition, with that same reminder uh, that Clay gave us that, that personnel is policy, uh, very much so in this in this town. And lastly, I, I want to just link it to the, the point that Conan made that where we see some similar signs in Europe, hopefully this could be a, a constructive signal of some increasing US and EU alignment, uh, and that maybe some of that commonality across the Atlantic could hopefully build on some of the recent G7 progress and be something that, uh, something that could, can become a basis for working towards greater standards for improving the free flow of data across borders, which is so important to the global economy and indeed to the global financial services sector. So thank you, Clay. Thank you, Conan. Great to have you both with us on FRT. Thank you very much, Brad. It was a pleasure. And if I can just quickly foreshadow some of our upcoming episodes, we're going to look at the recent US agency's request for information on artificial intelligence and machine learning. And we'll do that together with Auguste Sujanto of Wells Fargo. My colleague, Natalia Bailey, will review the new IIF data ethics charter with Jade Haar of National Australia Bank and David Hardoon of the Union Bank of the Philippines. And Mina Lodge will discuss the first two instalments of the IF's new Spotlight on Inclusion series with two of the firms whose initiatives we've profiled, uh, Amin Carey of CIB Egypt and Chad Harper of Visa. So please stay safe and join us for those upcoming episodes. I'm Brad Carr and thanks for listening on FRT.